So I want you to imagine a world, imagine a world in which anything you could ever want is right at your fingertips. No financial obstacles, no supply chain delays. The only thing holding you back is your imagination. Michelin starred food, it's on the way. Vintage wine, it's already in the glass. Priceless art, here's the Sotheby's catalog. A beautiful woman, take your pick. Great live music, any artist you want can be at your home this evening. Now it's hard for most of us to imagine a reality like this, but these are the actual circumstances of the preacher of Ecclesiastes, and he is not shy about describing them. Most likely this preacher whom we met last week was Solomon, the wealthiest and wisest king in the history of Israel. His fame and his fortune were so vast that rulers from around the world came to Jerusalem just to visit him. He had access to anything he wanted. And in the second chapter of Ecclesiastes, he tells the story of what he discovered when he said yes to every desire he could dream of. So during this season of Lent, we're taking a look at this profound and troubling little book as we search for meaning in our broken world. As I said last week, the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes, he's, he's kind of like the slightly unhinged uncle of the Bible. So he says stuff that's undeniably true, but rarely mentioned in polite company. He's got no filters, no blinders, no hesitation about naming what's wrong with the world. And for him, no question is off limits because everything serves to lead us to the truth about who we are, where we live, and the God who made us. This morning we're going to join the preacher in those first 11 verses of chapter 2 as he asks one of the most basic and elusive questions of all. Is there anything in this world that will truly satisfy the human heart? Is there anything in this world that will truly satisfy the human heart? As we join him on this quest, we are going to discover the empty promise of pleasure and as a result, the absolute importance of orienting our hearts to the God who made us. So we begin with the preacher's quest and the empty promise of pleasure. You can find our text on page 553 in the Red Bibles, and you'll want to be there as we walk our way through it. Page 553 in the Red Bibles. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. <clears throat> I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? So the preacher leaves no question as to the outcome of his great experiment. He tells us at the outset that he sought to fill his heart with pleasure only to discover emptiness. Having told us the outcome, however, he steps back in verse 3 to explain how he got there and why we should believe him. So verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Now that explanation, it's important. It's important for this reason. In his search for pleasure, Solomon didn't just dive into debauchery. 
That phrase, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, it makes the point that this was a careful, cultivated search for lasting, enduring pleasure. This is not a midlife crisis. It's not a bout of escapism. This is the pursuit of pleasure at an entirely different level, which he begins to explain for us in verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who'd been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. This is a man of cultured taste, enormous ambition, and incredible ability. And he's embarking on a multi-year pursuit of pleasure that involves the construction of an entire ecosystem. Solomon builds a palace and parks. He oversees the cultivation of his own food and wine. He fills his home with slaves. He builds a collection of silver, gold, and other priceless treasures. He employs the equivalent of his own orchestra. He has sex with any woman he chooses, and he keeps them around the palace like decorations. He sets aside the commandments of God, and he applies his vast brilliance to calibrate every detail of his life to the perfection of pleasure. But does he enjoy it? Of course he does. Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Solomon got everything he wanted and he enjoyed it. He even enjoyed the work, the toil involved. Solomon succeeded in his pursuit of pleasure, but only insofar as he found pleasure. This is what he says in verse 10, and it's monumentally important for understanding what follows. The momentary pleasure of pleasure was the reward for all his labors, and it was the only reward. And that pleasure was fleeting. It didn't give his life meaning, the meaning that he had hoped for. And so he says in verse 11, he says, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All that work... All that pleasure, all the expense and investment and extravagance, and at the end of the day, it was completely meaningless. It didn't bring him one step closer to fulfillment or to permanence because the pleasure passed through him like a breath. It was vanity. That's the way of pleasure. It doesn't accumulate in our souls and transform into something like contentment or fulfillment or personal meaning. It just passes right through us. And when we attempt and when we pursue it, 
in an attempt to fill our hearts, we fill our hearts with nothing but emptiness. So if you watched the Super Bowl a few weeks ago, you might have seen a commercial for the travel website Expedia featuring uh, the actor Ewan McGregor. It begins with McGregor walking through a large set where different commercials are being filmed. There's a luxury SUV, an adorable puppy, a beautiful woman holding a bottle of perfume, and a host of other desirable things. And as he passes by each of these things, McGregor looks earnestly into the camera and he says, stuff, we love stuff. And there's some really great stuff out there, but I doubt that any of us will look back on our lives and think, I wish I'd gotten a sportier SUV bought an even thinner TV or found a trendier scent. I wish I'd discovered a crunchier chip or found a lighter light beer, bought an even smarter smartphone. Do you think any of us will look back at our lives and regret the things we didn't buy? McGregor then pauses before a closed door, which he opens onto a sun-drenched beach and says, or the places we didn't go. Cue inspiring music and scenes of people enjoying blissful experiences. So the commercial is this brilliant combination of wisdom and manipulation. It critiques our acquisitiveness, our pursuit of happiness through material things, only to offer us another path to happiness, travel. You've tried all these things, the ad implies, But you haven't been to Portugal in the autumn or to the rainforests of the Amazon, and you haven't taken a trip in a hot air balloon over Napa Valley at sunset. You haven't really tried everything, and you have no idea what you're missing. This is the incredibly enticing promise of pleasure. Just try one more thing better bourbon, a different sexual partner, an exotic trip, new technology. The reason you're not happy, we're told, is that we just haven't tried the right thing. And to this, the preacher of Ecclesiastes says to us, I have tried everything. I actually know what you're missing out on. And trust me, It won't make you happy and it won't give you meaning. You can buy that new SUV, you can drink the best bourbon, you can travel to the ends of the earth, circle the globe, you can even ride in that hot air balloon. But when you come home, you will be the same person you were when you left. You'll just be slightly more disillusioned and disappointed. Now, it might be tempting to say of the preacher's experiment, no harm, no foul, right? What's wrong with a little misspent time and energy? But his description shows us otherwise. Not only is it a waste of time and resources, it is destructive and it is powerfully deceptive. So I want you to take a look back at the preacher's description in verses one to 11, and I want you to notice two things. First. Look at how often the words, me, myself, I, and mine, appear. Just look. And take verses 9 and 10 just as an example. 
So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. The self-centeredness, it's exhausting. This is a man whose pursuit of pleasure was oriented entirely around himself. And that, of course, is what pursuing pleasure does to us. It orients us toward ourselves and then blinds us to those around us. Sure, the preacher built incredible things that others could enjoy, but his vision, his passion, and his efforts were all self-directed. More than this, his pursuit of pleasure actually magnified his self-centeredness and expanded it. His power and his wealth allowed him to force the attention of everyone around him to maximizing his pleasure. And in doing this, he, I almost fell off the back of the pulpit. And the terrible thing is it's on video too now. It used to be that I could do this and you all would laugh and it would be funny, but now it's like on video forever on the internet. Um, where was I? <laughs> So in this great experiment of his, he abused people. He enslaved people. He mishandled countless men and women. There are always casualties along this path to pursuing pleasure. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want you to notice in this description is, the, is what happens in verses four to eight. So the preacher built parks and fountains, gardens and pools. He raised herds, he cultivated wine, he grew fruit. What does this sound like? It sounds an awful lot like Eden, but without the forbidden fruit. Everything was meant to be tasted and consumed. Nothing was off limits. Now that sounds pretty nice on the surface, doesn't doesn't it? But notice what's missing from this garden. There is no tree of life. There's no tree of life. There's nothing that actually gives meaning or permanence. And more dramatically, there is no sign of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The preacher's garden paradise that he spent most of his life constructing, it's a a panoply of good things, but at the end of the day, it is a shabby imitation of the real garden of paradise. Without God in the garden, the fruit will never fill us up. The pleasure will be vanity. It's all an empty promise. The empty promise of pleasure is that it will fill you, satisfy you, and give your life meaning. But as the preacher found out, pleasure's passing. Meaning and fulfillment have got to be found elsewhere. So does this mean that we should shun pleasure? Should, should, we, should we scorn beauty and good food and great music? Well, the preacher's response to this question may surprise you. As Ecclesiastes unfolds, he makes clear that shunning pleasure is just as misguided as trying to find fulfillment through pleasure. And that's because pleasure, it's not the problem. The problem is our relationship to it. 
And that leads us to the second thing I want for us to consider this morning, and that's the importance of orienting our hearts to the God who made us and grants us pleasure as a part of his creation. So a good friend recently sent me a link to a podcast called Bear Grease. I never would have found this on my own. It's basically a super smart redneck podcast that features really fascinating conversations about hunting, fishing, and life outside the confines of urban America. One recent episode focused entirely on duck hunting in Arkansas. And it featured a long discussion about bird migration. (laughs) Y'all are wondering like, where the heck is he going with this? Well, this discussion about bird migration, I found astonishingly helpful for grasping what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is trying to help us understand. So when a migratory bird wants to go from point A to point B, often with thousands of miles in between, there are two key elements to the bird's travel. There's orientation and then there's navigation. So orientation and navigation. Birds first have to orient themselves to where they are in the world and only then can they successfully navigate to their destination. So uh, birds orient themselves by utilizing an incredible array of sensory perceptions, most of which we don't have and can't even imagine. So most migratory birds have an incredible sense of hearing, especially on low frequency noises. So they can travel down the Mississippi flyway, listening to the hum of the Atlantic Ocean to the left and the Pacific to the right, all while listening to the murmur of tectonic activity in the mountains of Mexico. Birds orient themselves visually to the landscape below them, to the sun in orbit, orbit, to the position of the stars at night. They can see bands of polarized light that we can't see, and they possess a magnetic perception that orients them to the poles. And with all of these tools at their disposal, they are able to orient themselves precisely to the world. And it's then, and it's only then, that they can navigate to their destination through every conceivable impediment, crosswinds, storms, starless nights. So if our lives are a journey from birth to death in which much of what we experience is vanity, we need to be able to orient ourselves to reality before we can ever attempt to navigate through life. And that, I think, is what Ecclesiastes is all about. Orientation, so that we can navigate. The preacher wants us to be honest about what life under the sun is like so that we can eventually learn to look over the horizon and beyond the sun in order to see our creator. Only then, only once we know the one who made us and what he's calling us to, can we learn how to navigate through this vain and painful world. The the problem with the preacher's pursuit of pleasure was that he used his own desires as the key to orienting himself in the world. He made himself the magnetic North Pole and then tried to navigate life with himself at the center. So what that means effectively is that if he had bothered to look at a compass, it would have been spinning in circles. Even though he thought he was in control and he thought he knew what he was doing, he was totally and completely lost in the world. 
and unable to find his way. So what does this have to do with our approach to pleasure? And that's where I think our short gospel reading comes in. So John tells us in his gospel that on the last day of the great feast of booths, near the end of his ministry, Jesus stood among the crowds of the temple and he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus doesn't give us passing pleasures. He gives us permanent sustenance instead. Our most basic physical need in life, or our our most basic spiritual need in life is for him, just like water is our body's most basic physical need. And when we turn to him to meet that need, he provides for us continually, abundantly, and eternally. Once you've received the permanent sustenance of Jesus, then the passing pleasures of this world are put in their place. You can enjoy the good things God gives us without trying to find meaning or fulfillment in them. You can also learn to deny yourself the pleasures that God has put off limits because you know that not only are they meaningless, they lead to destruction and deception. A nice glass of wine is still enjoyable, but you don't have to drink the whole bottle. Is there anything in this world that will truly satisfy the human heart? Under the sun, no. Nothing can satisfy. No pleasure is lasting. Everything fades. But when we look to the one who made the sun, who came down and dwelt among us, who died that we might live, then, and only then, do we find what truly satisfies our souls. Through him, we orient ourselves to reality and we begin to find our way in the world. For only when we are truly satisfied in Christ can we turn and enjoy the world that he's made. Let's pray. Lord God, would you protect us from the empty promise of pleasure, from the deception and the destruction that follow when we orient ourselves to the world according to our desires? Would you instead give us eyes to see beyond the sun and live under the gaze of you, our creator? May we orient ourselves to reality as it really is. And may we navigate life with wisdom and with grace, enjoying the good pleasures you give us, but never seeking meaning or fulfillment from them. May we find ourselves in you and only in you. And we, may we do so for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>